All right. Words. Uh, words are powerful. James speaks of how with our words, uh, our tongue to be more precise, uh, how with them we can bless our God and Father, and with, with words we can curse men. With words we can share great affection by saying, I love you. By the way, guys, Saturday is Valentine's Day, so be ready to go. All right. But it is in Japan that the ladies buy on February 14th and then the guys buy on March 14th. So and if you mess up, guys, and blow it, you can, that's your saving grace. Okay, try and pull that one out. It won't work, but you can try. Okay? With words, though, uh, you know, we can uh, not only show great affection, but we can also use words to cause great harm. You know, words have the power to build up and they have the power to tear down. Today we're going to look at some words that were shared during the six hours that Jesus hung upon the cross. Now traditionally, uh, we often look at the final words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Uh, And and I'm sure if you've been going to church for for quite some time that you have heard a message or two about the uh, final seven seven sayings uh, Jesus uttered from the cross. Uh, if you were actually with us last year on, on Good Friday, we went through and looked at the sev- seven sayings uh, that Jesus spoke while on the cross. Jesus spoke these seven different sayings from the cross, and each saying was significant, uh, and it, each saying alluded to or, or exampled for us uh, different things. Today, uh, we'll look at those seven sayings, uh, but not just those. Uh, For on that fateful day, as Jesus was being sacrificed as our Passover lamb, other words were spoken as well. Words from the crowd. Words from the soldiers. uh, Words from amongst the multitudes of people passing by. Words from the chief priests and elders. and, And even words from the two criminals that were hung right beside him. One on his right and the other on his left. And as we look at the words at the cross, uh, we'll look to glean just the wonderful truths that they exemplify, that we might gain uh, just a better understanding of what took place that day. I know we've been going over this day for the last couple weeks, and we will for another week after this too. So uh, hopefully it's still been good for you. You're looking forward to uh, the word. I know that I enjoy getting into it with you guys and going through. So uh, we're going to be reading, as, as most of you know, from the book of Matthew, chapter 27. Uh, so go ahead and start making your way there if you haven't already. Matthew, chapter 27. Uh, although our main text will be in Matthew, we will be jumping around a little, looking at all four of the Gospels uh, to gather all the words that are recorded for us that were spoken during those six hours that Jesus was upon the cross. Today we'll be reading... Uh, from where we last left off. And if you weren't with us, I do want to just give a little recap. Recall that Jesus uh, has been sentenced by Pontius Pilate to uh, crucifixion because of the demands of the people. He believed Jesus to be an innocent man, but he feared the people. And he feared what they would do if he did not hand Jesus over to be crucified. Before he would be crucified, he was first scourged. 
And we looked at that last week in details. In detail, uh, two Roman soldiers would stand opposite each other with the bare body of Christ between them, and they would take turns striking Jesus with the Roman flagrum, an instrument of cruelty and torture that would tear open the flesh of our Savior's back. He was led to the place of crucifixion, being mocked and beaten further by the Roman soldiers. And when they arrived at Golgotha, they took nails and they nailed him to a cross. Fastened above his head a sign that read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they raised him up. And that's where we last left off and where we're going to pick up the account in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 27. Will you please stand as we read this morning's text? Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 through 50. Follow along as I read. I'm reading from the New King James Version, so hopefully uh, your version's not too different and you easily follow along. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to to gather with brothers and sisters Lord, to spend time with you, our Father. And I pray, Lord, that as we've, uh, as we've lifted up and opened up our hearts to you in worship, Lord, that you would just pour into it through your word. Lord, I pray that we would come with uh, an excitement and an anticipation and an expectation that you're going to speak to us. God, this is your love letter to us. May we have uh, uh, just an excitement that we get to read what you have for us this day. Lord, I know that we're all in different places. Some of us are doing great and we're enjoying your many blessings. Some of us are going through trials and difficulties right now. Lord, I trust that you have a word for each of us. And so, Father, we want to invite your spirit to have reign in this place. Lord, lead and guide as we go through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our opening verses detail for us that alongside Jesus, there were crucified 
uh, two others, one on his right and, and uh, another on his left, and they were robbers, it tells us. Uh, now, normally, robbery was not a capital offense okay, uh, under Jewish law, but remember that this is Rome, okay? And they were in control, and they had the power to crucify, uh, and that power was given at the discretion of the procurator. And so Pontius Pilate, you know, he could say, this guy's going to be you know, crucified. It didn't necessarily have to follow uh, a strict law. It was his decision to make. Okay? And it's interesting, because I did a little study of the word used here for robbers, and I believe it shed a little light on perhaps why these two robbers were being crucified. Okay? The Greek word here is leistes, and it's different from another Greek word, kleptes, okay? from which we get our English slang word klepto, Okay, or uh, which we use to refer to someone that has a problem with stealing, right? They're a klepto or kleptomaniac. Okay, uh, that Greek root word kleptis, it's not the same one that's being used here. Okay, the difference between leistes and kleptis is that the latter kleptis does his work in a secret manner so that he may not be discovered. Okay. Violence, on the other hand, is the characteristic of lay states. Okay? Stealth is the characteristic of the kleptus. Okay? Judas, he's described as a kleptus. Okay? He, he stole secretly, without violence. Okay? Barabbas, he's described as a lay states. Okay? Uh, a violent, out-in-the-open type of thief. Okay? It's likely that these men were not just being crucified because they stole something. Okay? but because of the means in which they uh, used to commit their crime. Okay? Uh, perhaps through their violent attacks of thievery, they took the life of another, and thus their life is being required of them. Uh, we can't say for certain, but the word used here clearly identifies these robbers as violent and aggressive men, not just someone who, who sneaks behind uh, in the shadows trying to steal things uh, without being seen. Okay? The fact that Jesus is being crucified amongst these thieves is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah wrote of the future suffering of the Messiah, of the Messiah in chapter 53. And he also said uh, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53 verse 12. Okay? And so throughout our time this morning, we're going to see a number of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. And we won't go into all the details of those prophecies, but I'm just going to try and make mention of them so that you kind of see uh, all of the prophecies that came into place just in these six hours that he was upon the cross. Okay, uh, and, and really, as we look at the prophecies, it just proves to us that in the midst of all this chaos of, of the crucifixion and the scourging and all that was going on, that God was in control, fulfilling his word and completing the mission. Verse 39 tells us that the passers-by blasphemed Christ and they wagged their heads at him. To blaspheme someone was to speak evil of someone, to slander or rail against someone with the intent to hurt the reputation or injure with reports or words. And so as mentioned, Uh, In our opening, words can hurt. And and these words that were hurled at Jesus Christ while upon the cross had every intention to do just that. To add insult to injury, to cause emotional pain along with his physical pain. 
Before these accusations came, Jesus actually uttered the very first of his seven sayings while upon the cross. It's actually found in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 23, verse 34. It says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The very first words that we hear at the cross are words that remind us of the significance of this action. The significance of the crucifixion. Okay? The, the crucifixion, excuse me, the crucifixion was all about forgiveness. Jesus died upon the cross that forgiveness of sins might be made available to us. And so for, right off for the get-go, the very first statement, he's, this is about forgiveness. Without the cross, there is no forgiveness for us. So even though these people are responsible for mocking and ridiculing him, beating and bloodying him, and nailing him to the cross, Jesus wanted the Father to forgive them. Because that is one of the things that the cross signified for us. Forgiveness. These people would come to him and wag their heads at Jesus as he hung upon the cross. Even this act of wagging their heads was prophesied. Psalm chapter 22 verse 7 reads, All those who see me ridicule me, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head. Psalm chapter 22, we're going to be looking at a lot of different verses from Psalm 22 this morning. Quoting a lot of different verses from Psalm 22. We won't read the whole entire thing, but I do want to encourage you, if you have time, Today, maybe a little bit later on, you have some quiet time. Read through Psalm 22. Be amazed at what the psalmist writes of the Messiah. Unbeknownst to them, they, their very actions are fulfillments of prophecy. Let's look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, And saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Here we read of some of the things that the multitudes hollered out at him. And as we read these words, we we need to realize that they are coming from a crowd of people. It's not as though they all are saying the same thing and they're chanting something uh, repeatedly as a crowd. But uh, uh, as we read it, it may appear that it's coming from one person. But the idea here is that many different people are saying different things. And Matthew records some of those sayings from different individuals, but credits them just to the multitude. The multitudes were saying this. Verse 40, I believe, should be read as two different sayings being thrown against Jesus from different individuals. The first being, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And then someone else from the multitude was hollering out and crying out. And the second, they, they said, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know, looking at these statements, we can glean a couple things. The first statement shows to us that the people, they didn't know Jesus' word. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. Okay, recall that, even in our study of Matthew chapter 26, that this is what they tried to first accuse him of. Okay? When he was before the high priest. The high priest was searching for false testimony that could be used against Jesus, and that's exactly what he got. He got false testimony. Okay? They tried to say that Jesus claimed he was able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Matthew chapter 26, verse 61. 
What Jesus actually said is recorded for us in John chapter 2, verse 19. John 2, 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He never made any threats of his home that he was going to destroy the temple. In fact, what he was referring to was them destroying his temple, his body. Okay? They were the ones doing the destroying, not him. The people, they misunderstood his word. And they accused him of saying something that he never said. You know, this is something that still happens today. And the, and the sad matter of, uh, of fact is that people, people don't know God's word. People don't know what God's word says. The scriptures instruct, instruct us to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And yet, sadly, many of the churches today are sending out biblically illiterate followers of Christ. People don't know God's word. They don't understand it, and they say it says things that it doesn't say. According to the Barna Research Group, 81% of Americans that identified themselves as born-again Christians, this isn't just every American, but you identified yourself as a born-again Christian, 81% of them said, or they believe, that God helps those that help themselves as an actual Bible verse. That's not in the Bible, okay? A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. And although that might be a noble cause, it's not the most important thing that the Bible teaches us. We've failed to study ourselves and know the Word of God and to rightly divide it. We're willing to listen to what others say about the Bible without ever checking it ourselves. Just like the people in the crowd here who are misquoting Jesus and saying that he said something he never did, people will repeat, will repeat all sorts of things that other people say and believe that it's actually part of God's Word. We need to be good Bereans. You guys know about the Bereans? Paul went Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, writes about the Bereans. Okay, Dr. Luke, he commended those in Berea because they gladly received the word with great eagerness. And then they would go and they would examine the scriptures to find out if what Paul was saying was true. Okay. And I invite you to do the same. Study for yourself. Listen to what I say and then go check it out for yourself. It's very important that we not be biblically illiterate. We need to know the Word of God. We need to know what it says. Well, the second statement that came from the multitude is something that sounds like it came straight from the devil himself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Satan, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, two of his three statements began with those very, that same phrase. If you are the Son of God. He said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. 
And then the second accusation, he came to him, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. He had brought him up to the pinnacle of, uh, of the temple there, and he said, throw yourself down. He even quoted scripture, saying that the angels would take charge, uh, and they would catch you. If you are the son of God. Satan was challenging the relationship that Jesus shared with his father. The people's insinuation was that he wasn't the Son of God. That if he really was the Son of God, that he would be able to come down from the cross. They challenged Jesus' relationship with the Father. And this is the tactic of our enemy. He tried it on Jesus and he tries it on us as well. He wants you and I to doubt our relationship with the Father. The enemy loves to whisper in our ears lies that make us doubt our relationship with the Lord. You're not a child of God. You're nothing like Him. You blow it all the time. God doesn't love you. Look at how often you sin. You're a failure. You're a lost cause. Give up. God doesn't want you. Those are lies from the enemy. He will always try to attack your relationship with the Father. Interestingly, Jesus shows us how to combat the lies of the enemy that would lead us to doubting our relationship with the Father. And it goes back to the very first point that we talked about. Jesus quoted the Word of God when Satan tried to attack his standing in the Lord, and we can do the same. When the enemy starts whispering those lies to you, look to the promises of God found in His Word. There you will find peace and comfort and the ability to fight off the attack of the enemy. Both of these statements are, are part of how the enemy works. Okay? The enemy challenges God's word and he challenges your relationship with the Father. We need to be on alert. Know your enemy and, and don't be caught off guard when he attacks. Verse 41 through 43, we'll look at a new group of uh, speakers here. It says, likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Here we hear from the religious leaders, the the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Three different statements of mockery were recorded for us. The first was, he saved others, himself he cannot save. The fact of the matter is that Jesus could have saved himself, but he would not. For you see, within this statement is a very incredible, a great spiritual truth. Jesus did save others. The miracles he did, they were undeniable. But if Jesus wanted to continue to save others... He could not save himself. You see, if Jesus saved himself, then he could not have saved you and me. Jesus did not come to save his life, but to give it as a ransom for sinners. Jesus could have saved himself, but he would not save himself so that he could save you and me. The second statement from the religious elite was, If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. 
The religious elite asked for all sorts of signs that would prove Jesus was who he said he was. Earlier in the book of Matthew, the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Jesus responded to them by declaring, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 and 40. The sign that he promised to show them was not his ability to come down from the cross, but it was his ability to come up from the grave. That was the sign that he would prove he was who he said he was. And sadly, we know that even Jesus Christ rising from the grave was not enough to change their hard hearts. Many people today want God to do the same for them. They want God to show them a miracle, and then they will believe. But it's just not true. John Corson, he he wrote in his commentary, Miracles do not produce faith. All they produce is an addiction to more miracles. Read the book of Exodus, and you will see the Red Sea parting, manna falling, water flowing, yet so faithless were the children of Israel, even after seeing miracle upon miracle, they didn't want to talk to God in Exodus chapter 20. Corson went on and he continued, he said, Signs and wonders and miracles do not produce faith because they invariably leave people confused about the miracles that didn't transpire. People might see ten events take place that are answers to prayer, But the one prayer that doesn't get answered the way they want is the one that hangs them up. That is why miracles are never enough. We always want to see another one, right? I think I've talked to you about this before. You see a miracle, uh, you want to see another one. I think it's, I liken it, not that miracles and card tricks are the same, but you see something, a sleight of hand or something, and you're amazed by it. You're really like, oh, that's so awesome. What's the first thing you say? Do it again. Right? Because you want to see it. You want to see the trick. You want to figure it out. Do it again. And you'll see, if someone's really good, they can do it again over and over again. You'll just say, do it again, do it again. You're not going to believe. And it's the same thing with, with miracles, or like eyes with miracles. The Lord could do all these miracles, but you're going to say, do it again. Do it again. Because you want to see the behind the scenes. You want to see how it works, how it's all figured out. That's not how it works. Miracles don't produce faith. They don't produce lasting faith. The third statement from the chief priests, scribes, and elders was, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Unknowingly, no doubt, the religious leaders here, they fulfill yet another prophecy spoken about the Messiah. Psalm 22, verse 8 reads, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Amazing. These are men that are supposed to know the word of God. These chief uh, priests, these religious leaders, they are supposed to be uh, scribes. They are scribes. Okay? They are the keepers of the word of God. Okay? And amazingly, they nearly quote word for word the scriptures that speak of their coming Messiah. 
And it it just goes to show how hard their hearts were. And how blinded they were with their sin. How blinded they were with jealousy. That they could speak these words about Jesus and not make the connection that this is their Messiah. It's unbelievable to think of. Well, the implication that they make here is that if Jesus was God's son, he would not have been abandoned to all this misery. Uh, That God would not have allowed his son to suffer in such a way that Christ is suffering. And, And if he really was the son of God, God would have came down and saved him. Little did they know that this was all part of God's plan. That God was going to work through this great difficulty to bring about the greatest victory ever won. These words of the religious leaders, they still echo in our ears today. When we're going through tough times, when we're struggling to see God's hand in the situations we find ourselves in, we hear these words. I thought you trusted in God. Why hasn't He delivered you from this difficulty? Doesn't He care about you? We hear it from mockers of our faith. And we hear it from the enemy. And sometimes we even think it ourselves. God, I've I've trusted on you. But where are you? Why are you letting me go through this pain? Why are you letting me go through this trial? Why am I going through this difficulty? Lord, where are you? You ever said that to yourself before? All along, unbeknownst to us, God is working overtime through these situations. He's making sure that everything is going to work out for our good and for His glory. He's going to work through that difficulty. He's going to work through that trial. He's going to work through that pain to give to you a victory that you never thought possible. Don't give up on the Lord. Don't listen to the mockers. God is going to work through your tough times and He will bring about victory. As I look back over these words that were meant as insults to Jesus as as He hung upon the cross, I, I find it interesting that all the things they mocked Him of were things that He really was and is. They mocked Him as a Savior. They mocked Him as uh, a king. They mocked Him as a believer who trusted in God. And they mocked Him as the Son of God. And if you look at it, Jesus is the Son of God who trusted in God the Father. And He became the King of kings and He became the Savior of the world. I find it interesting that these things that they mean to be reviles, mean to be rebukes or or harsh words, are, are all true. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Even the the robbers who were crucified in between uh, Jesus had words with Jesus upon the cross. Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us what was said, but Luke's account does. And so I want to turn, and you guys can turn with me to the Gospel of Luke real fast, uh, just a few pages over, okay? Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke. So uh, just uh, skip Mark and get into Luke. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, uh, I want to read the words of the criminal, excuse me, the criminals 
and the exchange that takes place between the criminals and Jesus. Verses 39 through 42 of Luke chapter 23. Verse 39 says this, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One of the criminals joined in with all the others in reviling Jesus Christ and requested that Jesus not only save himself, but hey, get, me, get us off the cross too. But, but I don't want to focus in on what the second criminal... I, I want to focus on what the second criminal had to say because I believe it points out a very important truth about our salvation. As the second criminal looks around and sees all that is happening and he hears all the mockery being poured out upon Jesus, he comes to a revelation. He begins to understand the situation that he is in. He looked at his own life and he knew that he was wrong. He knew that he had blown it. He knew he was deserving of what was coming his way, namely death. And at the same time, he looked at Christ. And he realized that Jesus was right. And that Jesus was undeserving of the punishment that he endured. And then the criminal, armed with this new knowledge and understanding, made a simple yet sincere request, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Basically, the criminal was was able to say, Jesus, I am wrong. You are right. Would you please remember me? Jesus responded with his second statement from the cross. There in verse twenty, uh, excuse me, 43. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This second statement from the cross shows to us really the simplicity of salvation. Salvation comes when you and I acknowledge that we're wrong, that Jesus is right, and that we want to be part of His kingdom. You see, Jesus didn't say, "Mm, Sorry, buddy. You need to be baptized before you can come and be a part of my kingdom. And He didn't say, There's no hope for you, for you need to be a person that prays every day and and reads your Bible. Uh, And you need to uh, make it, that's what you need to do to make it into my kingdom. You're out of luck. Jesus didn't tell the criminal that he first had to go door to door and tell people about him before he could be part of the kingdom. Jesus didn't say, you're just too dirty. Okay? If you would have cleaned your act up a little bit and then come to me, well then you would have had a shot, but not now. Jesus didn't say any of those things. Salvation doesn't come through those things. Being baptized. Praying, reading God's word every day, going door to door, or even living a cleaner life. Salvation comes when we realize we're wrong, Jesus is right, and we in faith ask him to be part of his kingdom. You know, the third statement Jesus spoke from the cross is uh, another statement here. 
The third one, it's not recorded for us in the book of Matthew, but it's found in John's Gospel. And I want to turn there real fast as well. So we're going to look at, here was the second. We're going to look at the third one real fast. Okay, John chapter 19, verses 25 and t- through 27. John 19, so just the next book over, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. It says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, whom we know it was John because oftentimes he's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple. Okay? Uh, he said, Behold your mother. And as we look at this third saying, I know it's been said many times before, but it's, it's, a, it's a great truth that families are made at the foot of the cross. That the mother of Jesus was taken in by John the Beloved and he took care of her like, he was, like she was his own. Jesus was concerned for the well-being of his mother. He wanted to ensure that she would be cared for and looked after. And that's what John did. At the foot of the cross, Jesus established this new family. And when you and I come to the foot of the cross and we look upon the Savior and realize our need for Him and come to faith in Him, we too are entering into a family, the family of God. The Scriptures teach us how we become sons and daughters of the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. You receive by belief, by faith. It ties back to the, the second statement. You and I are children of God. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we all ha- have been brought into this family together. And we need to care for one another and look out for one another. And carry each other's burdens and lift each other up. Verse 45, we'll continue here, going back to the book of Matthew. I have little tabs on mine, so it's easy. You guys have to take a little time. But hopefully you stuck your bulletin or something in there. Matthew 25, or excuse me, Matthew verse 45, chapter 27. It says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Okay, uh, which we would be around 9 o'clock a.m. Okay. Uh, the Israelites counted their hours based upon the rising of the sun. The sun would usually rise around 6 a.m., give or take, but we just round it off around 6 a.m. Sun rises, and so uh, three hours later would be 9 o'clock, the third hour. Okay, and we're told that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness fell upon the land. So the sixth hour would be 12 noon. And uh, the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock p.m. in the afternoon. Okay. The first three sayings from the cross from Jesus Christ, uh, they came within the first three hours that Jesus was upon the cross. And then darkness came upon the land, including with it a silence. Nothing 
is recorded for us in any of the scriptures, any of the four gospels or any other accounts therein about any words being shared during the three hours of darkness. Darkness fell upon the land and it was silence. This three hours of darkness, it was quite significant. Some try to explain this miracle as uh, perhaps a solar eclipse. Okay? But a solar eclipse is insufficient to cast darkness upon a land for three hours. Okay? Solar eclipses usually last around seven minutes. Okay? So uh, not hours, they last minutes, not hours. Okay? Also, it's very important to note that this is the Passover. And the, the Jewish people, they use a lunar calendar. And Passover happened on the 15th of the month which would be a full moon. Passover happens uh, during the full moon, and the only time you can have a solar eclipse is during a new moon, when the moon crosses in between the earth and the sun. And so there's no way that this was a solar eclipse. Okay? It was not a, a natural phenomenon. This was a supernatural darkness that came upon the land. And according to Scripture, this has happened before. And I find it quite interesting of different accounts of where we read this. One in particular, I think, is very significant. Okay. The ninth plague, the plague that preceded the Passover, was a plague of darkness. This is it significant because there were three days of darkness in Egypt before the Passover, and there were three hours of darkness before the Passover Lamb of God would die upon the cross for our sins. This is not the only type of symbolism that we get regarding the darkness that fell upon the land. The darkness symbolizes for us the time when Jesus Christ became sin for us. The darkness of sin was placed upon him as he hung upon the cross for our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yet another noteworthy point regarding this darkness is the fact that if you think of the life of Christ, at his birth there was a great light. There was a star in the sky that led people to his location. And it seems only fitting that in his death there would be a great darkness. Jesus truly is the light of the world. And when man rejected him as the light of the world, the land was covered with darkness for three hours. Verse 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At about the ninth hour, okay, so this is three o'clock in the afternoon, the darkness faded away, and Jesus cried out his fourth saying from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words, too, uh, were part of the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures as, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is the opening line to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, as I mentioned, it's an incredible psalm. It's incredibly rich. It speaks of the suffering of the Messiah. It was written nearly a thousand years before Christ came, and yet it speaks with great detail of the suffering that Jesus Christ endured. And as we look at this fourth saying, it teaches us about the horrible consequences of sin. Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. 
And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. The darkness that fell upon the land for three hours, it portrayed, as I mentioned, a time when the sins of all humanity were placed upon Jesus Christ. And as your sin and my sin were placed upon Jesus Christ, that sin separated us from the Father. Fellowship with the Father had been broken because of the sin that was placed upon the Son. And that's why Jesus spoke about being forsaken by the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 tells us of how the Lord's eyes are too pure to look upon evil, that He can't even look upon that which is wrong. In essence, because of the sin that was placed upon Jesus, the Father had to turn away. He can no longer look upon the sin that was laid upon Jesus Christ. He cannot look upon the sin. Jesus speaks about feeling that feeling of being forsaken. And the consequences of our sin is that it separates us from God. And the consequences of our sin upon Christ was that it, it, He had to feel what it was like to be separated from the Father, something that He had never felt before. And what an incredible price that He paid. Verse 47 through 49, Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. When Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, some mistakenly thought he was speaking about Elijah. The Hebrew uh, for Elijah is Eliah. Okay? And so uh, it could easily be misunderstood when he says, Eli, uh, my God, Eliah uh, is different. But we can maybe understand the misunderstanding. We're told that immediately one of them ran to get a sponge, placed it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. And it is most likely at this time that Jesus spoke his fifth saying from the cross. In accordance with Scripture, Jesus declared in John chapter 19, verse 28, I thirst. This was a fulfillment of more of the details from Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22 verse 15 speaks of how the Messiah would thirst, that his tongue would cling to his jaws. Also, Psalm 69 21 prophetically speaks of how sour wine would be given to Jesus. The, the fifth saying from the cross, it reminds us of the humanity of Jesus Christ. The blood, uh, the plasma, our, our blood, right? Uh, plasma constitutes about 55% of our blood, and it's over 90% water. Okay? And, and so, as Jesus' blood poured out from his head, his hands, his feet, and his back, his body was lacking the necessary body fluids to sustain his life, and so he proclaimed, I thirst. Well, that makes sense. Your body's lost its fluids. Jesus was 100% God at the same time, 100% man. He felt pain. He felt thirst. He was not immune to the difficulties that we feel and endure as humans. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest that was tempted in all points just as we are, that he went through the same stuff as us, and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. And when we understand that we have a great high priest 
that understands the pains and the difficulties that we go through. And he understands the temptation and the lures that are out there and that, are, uh, that we are more willing to come to him because of that, because we have that understanding. That's, why, uh, that's what the response should be, should be anyways, because Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that when we realize that we have a great high priest that can sympathize with us, because he too was human, he too went through the difficulties of life, that we can therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Because he was human, because he can sympathize with us, we can boldly come to him and we can find grace to help in our time of need. Verse 50, the very last verse says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The final two sayings uh, from the cross are believed to have been said one right after the other. Matthew uh, tells us that Jesus cried out again, but he doesn't tell us what he said. Uh, We find that Uh, find out just what he said in John's gospel as well as in Luke's gospel account. John tells us that uh, after Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, I thirst, and he had received the sour wine, that Jesus said, it is finished. And I I really love, uh, that's John 19.30. Uh, I I love the the, the Greek word here. And I love uh, one of the commentaries, Warren Wiersbe, he just explains this word so so great, uh, so you know. I'm not very good with words. So well, the English phrase "it is finished" is actually one word in the Greek, uh, the original Greek. It's the word "tetelestai." Tetelestai. Tetelestai was a word that could be used in many different scenarios. Warren Wiersbe, uh, in his commentary, he listed some of the uses of this phrase. I want to share them with you. The word tetelestai would be spoken by a servant to his master after completing the work assigned to him. Tetelestai, I've completed what you've asked of me. Also, it could be used when a priest would examine an animal sacrifice. Should the priest examine an animal sacrifice and find it to have fulfilled the requirements of being spotless or without blemish, he could use this word, tetelestai. This animal fulfills that which is required for the sacrifice. The word tetelestai would also be used of artisans like painters and writers as they would complete their works of art. A painter may say, Tetelestai, the the painting is complete. A writer may say, Tetelestai, the story has been finished. The fourth use of this phrase that was pointed out by Warren Wiersbe was the use of this phrase by merchants. When a merchant would sell goods and the transactions would be final, they would use this phrase to show that the price was paid in full. Tetelestai. Payment has been made in full. And it's amazing that as we look upon this sixth saying of Jesus Christ, how his use of this word can be seen in each of those situations. As a servant, Jesus fulfilled the mission the Father had given to him, Tetelestai. As the perfect spotless Lamb of God, his sacrifice fulfilled that which was required by the law, Tetelestai. God's rescue plan that had been written from centuries once before, from the beginning and the foundation of the world, has come to completion. Tetelestai. 
And last, but certainly not least, we see how the use of this phrase depicts Jesus' payment made in full for the price of yours and my sins. Tetelestai has been paid in full. This sixth saying from the cross, it reminds us of the finished, the, the completed work of God's plan of redemption. There is nothing that we can do to add to it or take away from it. Our debt has been paid. All that is left for us to do is simply believe upon Him and trust in that completed work. He has finished it. It is done. Tetelestai. The final saying Jesus said lines up with what Matthew describes when he speaks about Jesus yielding up his spirit. The record of his words is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. It's very important to note, and I know I made this mention last week, I still think it's very important to note that Jesus' life was not taken from him. Pontius Pilate did not take Jesus' life. The religious leaders did not take his life. The Roman soldiers did not take his life. Jesus gave his life. He willingly surrendered it to the Father. And I know, like I said, we noted this last week, but I think it's worth noting again because of the great significance that it is. Jesus went through all of the pain and the suffering of the crucifixion willingly. The scriptures teach us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy that was set before him was knowing that through his victory, you and I would be given the opportunity to be made right in the sight of God. His victory, as we'll see next week as well, portrayed and pictured in the tearing of the veil, granted to us access to the Father. A way has been made through Jesus Christ to have a relationship with the Father. And it's only through Christ that this relationship can be founded upon. Now, as we think of the crucifixion, we didn't go into the, really a lot of the details of crucifixion today. We, last week we kind of talked about that. And as we consider the crucifixion, it's one that should cause us great sorrow. But don't forget the wonderful victory that has been obtained for us. That Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life for the joy of knowing that you and I can be reconciled to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, as we looked at all these different words, all these different sayings that were spoken at the cross... There's so many things to pull out from it. But Lord, as I step back and just consider the entirety of it all, Lord, it's amazing. The forgiveness that you offer to us. The work that you have done. You've done it all. We didn't do anything. We just need to respond in faith. And we can have our sins forgiven. That Christ, you paid, you paid for all of our sins, each and every one of us. And Father, I pray that there's anyone here today that has not received that gift, has not received that completed work that you gave upon the cross. Lord, I pray that they would surrender their hearts to you. And in faith, they would cry out to you and say, Jesus, I'm wrong. I've blown it. 
You're right. I need you. I want to be in your kingdom. Lord, if there's anyone here like that this morning, I pray you just continue to speak to their heart. Lord, and show them the great need that they have for forgiveness. And Lord, and let them know that it's been paid, it's been offered, it's been obtained. It needs to be received and acted upon them. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you, as we'll see next week as we continue through Matthew, that the access that it grants us, that we can boldly come to you in our time of troubles, in our times of needs, and we can be confident that you're with us. We can be confident that you know our situation. And we can be confident that you're going to see us through. And you're going to give to us the victories. Lord, I pray that you would bless every one of your children here this morning. Lord, that you'd continue just to allow us to meditate upon your word and the things that were discussed this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.